0: Well welcome Wheaton Bible Church. We want to give a special warm welcome to anybody who's joining us for this service today. It is such a privilege to be able to gather even online to unite our hearts, to unite even our voices in praise and prayer to the Lord Jesus Christ today. Just a special thank you to our tech team, for all the volunteers and staff who are making this format possible for us. Well, today we celebrate God's goodness to us and his sovereignty and power in our lives in every circumstance. Philippians 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Amen to that. We are invited by God into a life of rejoicing, such a gift from him, an invitation to turn our eyes fully to the Lord And I invite you to come just as you are today to rejoice in him as we proclaim that our only hope is in Jesus Christ, an eternal hope that he secured through the cross. Let's come humbly to him today as we sing. choice Let's join together in the reading of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Well, after instructing us to rejoice in the Lord, Philippians 4 continues with this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we confess our earthly mindedness to you. We long to have our eyes on the things above, and we need your help to make it so. All the things causing us to be anxious are no surprise to you, our sovereign, all-powerful God. And Lord, we present our requests to you at this time. We're mindful of all the disruptions in our lives. We're mindful of those experiencing extra measures of loneliness or anxiety or depression these days. We praise you for being the God who is near. Lord, we are mindful of the sick. We're mindful of our health care workers, for loved ones, for public servants. We lift them all to you. Lord, we cling to you, we trust you. We have great hope in you, our savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be your hands and feet to those in our homes. Show us how to love those we can't come in contact with right now. Lord, be our healer, our shepherd, our leader, our comforter. We love you. And we join together in praying the prayer that Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread,
1: We welcome you, Iglesia. We welcome you, Wheaton Bible Church. Uh, My name is Hannibal Rodriguez. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at church. And I wanted to start by uh, telling you that we are so grateful that we get to meet together, at least uh, even though we are not physically together, we get to be together uh, thanks to the technology that the Lord has given us. I wanted you to know that uh, we miss you. We miss you greatly. We miss being able to be together. We miss being able to pray together. Uh, We miss being able to worship together and hear from God's word uh, together. And the other hand, though, we are very, very grateful that he has allowed us uh, to spend time together, even if it's um, this way. I also wanted you to know that we have been praying for you, that we care for you, that we're asking God to bless you and be with you in the midst of everything that we're going through. But also, I want, you to, uh, I want you to know that this is a great opportunity for us to be the church outside of the walls of this building. We get to love and serve our neighbors. We get to do things that will reflect that God is good and faithful and powerful. That being said, um, I would like us to read this morning uh, the scripture. And as you, uh, if you have been part of this uh, for the last few weeks, you know that we have been doing a series based on the book, of Ephesians a series that we have called true identity and basically what we have been trying to do is as to remind the church what truly defines us and to remind the church what truly dictates who we are um, and, and part of the reason why we're doing this is because it is so so easy for us to forget what really defines uh, what really defines us and what really dictates who we are um, So I want to invite you to read today with me Ephesians chapter 4, the second part of Ephesians chapter 4. And we're actually trying to answer one question with this text, is how is it that people change? Uh, Because part of our identity is that that we are a new people, that we have a new nature, a new humanity. And when we uh, live in light of that, that's how we change. So I'm going to invite you to please go to Ephesians chapter 4, verses uh, 17 through uh, 32. Uh, Now, this is a long section, and I'm going to uh, ask you to please uh, bear with me uh, as I read this uh, section all together. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verses 17, all the way to verse 32. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord... That you must no longer live as Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkening their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Verse 19. Having lost all sensitivity, they are giving themselves over to sensuality as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance, with the, in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by his deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we spend this morning together, we pray for the presence of your Spirit. Lord, we know that we are physically separated as a church. But we also know, Lord, that we are united as a church in your spirit. Therefore, Lord, I pray that as we gather this morning or we will gather later on as believers to listen to your word, Lord, I pray that you speak into our hearts. And you tell us and explain how is it that people change. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. See, I have this conviction that Everyone wants to change. I think that the reason why I could say that everyone wants to change is because uh, we all have this uh, idea, or we have the, the, the picture of the ideal, what the ideal life looks like. For the most part, I would argue that people want to become better people, that a parent wants to become a better parent, that a friend wants to become a better friend, that a worker wants to become a better worker. For the most part, I would say... We all want to change. The problem, though, is that change is not something that you do because you modify your behavior. Change must come from within. And change comes because of our relationship with Jesus. Now, what Paul is doing here, he's going to give us three things that we must keep in mind um, that explain how it that people change. And he's going to show us here that the only way a believer or a person could change it's when we understand and believe three things. Number one, what a life with, without Jesus looks like. We need to understand and believe that. We need to understand and believe what a life in Jesus looks like. And number three, we need to understand and believe how is it that a life is possible and it is only because of Jesus. With that in mind then, we want to start with the first point. Uh, we want to explain what a life without Jesus looks like. Now, uh, from verses 17 through 18, Paul here, the writer of this letter, is going to give us a very uh, clear explanation of what a life without Jesus looks like. So for example, in verse 17, he says that it is a life that, that, that lives in the futility of their thinking, and that their understanding is darkened, and that we are separated from the life of God. Now, the reason, the reason why I want you to keep that in mind is because every single one of those words matter. See, the word futility there in the original could also be translated as as an empty life, a fruitless life. What it means is that it doesn't matter how much you do and how much you conquer. What it means is that, that it doesn't matter how much you have. The reason why life feels empty and fruitless is because we are living for the wrong things. I think that this is a reality for many of us. It might be a a reality for you. I know that at times this is a reality for me. As someone has said it before, it doesn't matter how much I have, I still have nothing. It doesn't matter how much I feel, I still feel nothing. That's what it means to live a life without Jesus. And Paul argues that this happens because we don't know, we lack understanding of what really matters, and because we live a life separated from God. Paul continues with this conversation, and in verse 19, he adds to the conversation, and he says that a life without Jesus is a life that is, has lost all sensitivity, that is a life that indulges in every kind of impurity, and is a life that is full of greed. What I think Paul is saying here is that this is a life that is characterized By ignoring the path of self-destruction. He's describing here a life that is not uh, sensitive to the things that destroy you. I think that what the author is doing here is using something uh, similar to what Jesus used before. uh, Jesus used to describe a life without him as a life of a leper. See, leprosy is a, a life in which... Um, you lose the, it's a sickness in which you lose sensitivity to the point that even though you hurt yourself, you don't know that you're hurting yourself. I think that that, what Paul is arguing here is that the very things we love are the very things that hurt us. And the very things we do that are wrong or maybe not wrong, and I will explain that in a second, are the very things that destroy us. This is also part of the reason why life without Jesus is a life without satisfaction. That's why this is a life in which nothing is enough and we always need more and we always want more. This is part of the reason why I think that for all of us, even though we think that one more dollar will do it, even though we think that one more experience will do it, even though we think that one more job or a better job will do it, even though we think that one more relationship or a better relationship will do it, at the end of the day, we, I think that we could, we could all agree that nothing is enough. Nothing is satisfying enough. You never, never, ever arrive. Paul says here that a life without Jesus looks like this. It feels empty and it's fruitless. And it lacks understanding. And it lacks sensitivity. And oftentimes it's a life of self-destruction. It's a life in which we want more, and we search for more, and we desire more, and yet nothing is ever enough. Is that true for you? I think it's true for me as well. I think that every time, and oftentimes, I struggle with this just as much as you do. So the question is this. Why do we do that? Why do we struggle with this? Why is it that people, even though we have an understanding of what the ideal is, is why is it that we pursue things like this i think that in the same text paul offers two answers actually the first one uh here he explains that the tendency of the human heart the reason why we go through this is because the tendency of the human heart is to look for a meaningful life in things created rather than in that in the creator that's what he says in verse 22 when he says that a life without jesus It's a life that is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Now, the word desires there is important. And if you have been part of a church for a while, you have heard this before. But uh, the word desires here is not necessarily uh, 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 desiring wrong things. It's when we want good things way too much. To the point that even the good things that God gives us become functional saviors, functional gods. And the problem with these desires is that those very things that we pursue and want, at the end of the day, are the very things that control us. And we become slaves to those things. See, what Paul argues here is that the reason why sometimes life feels empty and fruitless and with uh, lack of sensitivity and lack of satisfaction is because we are looking for a meaningful life in all the wrong places. We are looking for a meaningful life in things or people or ideas that cannot give you what you demand and that cannot give you what you want. Once again, a better job will not be enough. A better relationship will not be enough. A better car will not be enough. A better house will not be enough. A better career will not be enough. Even better circumstances, as I think of what we're going through, will not be enough. See, I am not saying that all those things that we want are, are bad. I am not saying that those things don't provide a certain level of joy. What I'm arguing, which I think Paul is arguing, is that those things, as good as they are, they're not good enough. They're not powerful enough. They're not secure enough. They're not fulfilling enough enough. We can never find meaningful life in created things. This is not the way we were designed to be. Those things were not designed to fulfill the desires of our hearts. That's the first reason that Paul gives us. Why is it that we pursue this kind of life? The second reason why Paul gives us here in this text, and why is it that we struggle with a life that feels empty and fruitless and and lacks satisfaction? Is because, verse 18, of the hardening of our hearts. This is what that means. That a life without Jesus is characterized by us continually in our hearts rejecting God's truth. By us continually and purposely in our hearts rejecting God's love and rejecting God's compassion. Paul will make the same argument in Romans chapter 1. And he would say that at the end of the day, we are guilty. And the reason why we suffer is because we ourselves are rejecting the very thing that is best for us. That being God and what he wants for us. This is part of the reason why Jesus in one of the Gospels says this. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who killed the prophets and the stone, those, who sent, uh, those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather you children together as a hen gathers her cheeks under her wings, and you were not willing. This is Jesus saying, I wanted to give you life. You didn't, you didn't want it. This is what a life without Jesus looks like. The irony of all of this is that deep down inside, we all want a better life. We all want to change. We all know that everything that Paul is saying is here. Deep down inside, we know that it's true. We know that even though we pursue good things, we know deep down inside that that is not enough. That might be the reason why, during this season in which we are suffering i'm going through difficult times this might be the reason why many of us maybe if you're hearing this sermon today maybe this maybe this is the reason why you are so fearful i'm hopeless maybe you don't know how to face this maybe you don't know what to do in the midst of everything that we're going through maybe and just maybe the reason why we're going through all of this and we're struggling inside Is because the very things that we thought were secure or reliable or fulfilling or satisfying are no longer there. But today is a great day to remember that Jesus offers a different kind of life. Today is a great day for us to remember that it is possible to live an abundant life even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of struggle. Today's a great day to remember that Jesus came not just to free us from problems, but to give us life in the midst of problem. Not only to save us from struggling, but to save us through struggling. With that then in mind, I go to my second point. What does it mean to have a life in Jesus? See, in order to change, not only you need to understand what it means to have a life without Jesus, but we also need to understand what it means to have a life in Jesus. Now, a few moments ago, I told you that the the, the issue we have is a heart issue. So what I think that Paul, what Paul is doing here is he's going to appeal to your heart. So in in front of me this morning, I have two audiences. I have believers and I have uh, non-believers. So at least believers, not believers yet. And for the believer, God is uh, Paul or God through Paul is going to remind you that what is going to sustain you and what is going to give you an abundant life is that you remember in your heart who you already are in Jesus and what you already have in Jesus. That's for a believer. For the non-believer or the unbeliever, I think that what Paul is going to do is to invite you to consider what Jesus can give you. And what Jesus will give you if you surrender your life to him. So Paul is going to use kind of a metaphor here. Um, Starting in verse 22 and then he's going to use something different in verse 24. In verse 22 he calls believers to put off our old self. And in verse 24 he tells us to put on our new self. And if you see he's using these two things of putting off and putting on. And once again, this is talking about Christians. He's calling believers to put off something and to put on something. So the question for us this morning is, what does that mean? And I think that Paul here says that that, those phrases, putting off and putting on, mean three things. Number one, to put off and to put on means that the believer is called to to apply what we already are and what we already have see Paul couldn't be talking about something new that Christians have to do if you remember when we read the text at the beginning it says that Paul is talking to Gentiles and he's calling Gentiles to put off and put on but these are Gentiles that are Christian Gentiles that are already Christian therefore we assume and we can safely assume that what Paul is calling us to do as Christians is not to do something new, but to put off and put on what we, what, what, something that already happened when we accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior. See, if you have placed your faith in Jesus long ago, to put it that way, you already put off yourself and you already put on your new self. What Paul is calling us to do is to apply what we already have. He's saying, long ago, if you're a Christian, when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you all self died, and your new self is alive. This is what Paul is calling us to remember in our hearts. That when we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we became a new creation, a new humanity, A new human being. And the text says, created in the likeness of God. I think that this is really important. In order for us to live the life that we're supposed to live. Actually, the whole argument of Paul here is that we were created to live different. We were saved to live a life of holiness. Now listen. Listen. I know that the word holiness, um, it's almost like a, like a bad word in our culture. It's not a very popular word. It's actually, for so many people, even within the church, it sounds uh, negative and restrictive and unnecessary and even legalistic. But I want to argue that holiness is not a bad word. Actually, I want to argue that the best life that you can live as a Christian, if you're a believer, is when you live a life of holiness, even in the midst of pain pain and even in the midst of a struggle. And I want to give you three biblical arguments why I think that holiness is a good thing. Number one, holiness in the Bible, I understand, is the synonym of happiness. Now, where do I get that from? Well, two people in the Bible, you could say. One is Jesus, which we know that Jesus was a man without sin and lived a life without sin. And yet, uh, so he's a man of holiness, and yet, there's no one in the scripture that is more happy, more full of joy, more full of peace, even when he was suffering. Even before he went to the cross. Even as he's, as he's struggling and completely alone, he was experiencing joy. So I want to invite you to consider that holiness is not a bad word. It's actually the synonym of happiness. Happiness. And my second argument is God the Father himself. The Bible describes God as a God that is holy. And yet, the Bible describes God as a holy God that is beautiful, attractive, and happy. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, God creates everything and he rejoices in everything that he has created. My second argument for holiness here is that holiness actually makes you more human. See, I believe that living a life of holiness is the best thing to have an, uh, an abundant life because it makes you more human. I think that the Bible argues that the effect of sin is what dehumanizes you. Because you are controlled or being controlled by your appetites and your emotions. See, sin makes you irrational, egocentric, and selfish. It makes you less of a human. On the other hand, holiness humanizes you because he helps you live according to your design he helps you live according to what god has for you and what god has for you is always good holiness not only is the best thing for you but it's also the best thing for others that's why it couldn't be a bad word there's nothing more beautiful than a community that know how to love one another in holiness. Paul here is calling us to put off and put on what we already are and what we already have. Now, the second thing that I think Paul means when he says put off and put on, it means that believers are called to recognize that the struggle is real. So, what Paul is arguing here is that the reason why we, that, that we need to hear this over and over again is because it's still inside of us, there's a part of our old nature and there's a part of our new nature. That the, that the fight within is real, as Romans chapter 7 says. That is still, as Christians, there's a part of us that is flesh and there's a part of us that is still spirit. And what Paul is going to argue, that the only way we can live a life of holiness and apply what we already have and apply what we already are is when we learn how to put the all put off the old things, or the old flesh, and to put on the new nature. Oftentimes I, I, I have argued that by nature we know how to do this. So for example, if you want to grow in, in uh, you want to be uh, healthy, You know that you cannot eat certain things, and you know that you must learn how to eat certain things. If you want to be a better spouse, or a better uh, parent, or a better anything, you know that there are some things that you must put off, even if you like them, because you want to love other people. But at the same time, you must learn how to put on other things for the love of the people you love, or for the sake of the people you love. Once again, this is important not just for us as individuals, But it's also important for us as a community. Let me make another application here. I I think that for me, this is extremely important. Because if I know that even within me, I still have that fight. I expect that I'm going to struggle with some things. I expect that there are things that it's just going to take a longer time for me to get rid of. Even as, as I continue to fight the fight. And therefore, I have learned by the grace of God and by the power of the Spirit, to extend grace to myself. I know that I still don't have it altogether. When it comes to community, it's exactly the same thing. We expect that community is full of people that are still struggling with something. It is irrational and illogical to think that people come to us as a finished product. Therefore, I must learn you must learn how to extend grace to those that are struggling just as you. One of the beauties of Christianity is that we don't have to pretend to have it all together. We're still broken people in need of grace. We're still broken people in the process of growing into holiness. Paul here calls us to put off and put on things that are destroying us uh personally and destroys community because the struggle is real number three i think that paul here when he says he's calling us to put off and put on he's saying that believers are called to be intentional and this is part of the sermon when i'm going to be extremely practical because paul gets here extremely practical and he's going to give us a few things that we must learn how to put off and put on he's teaching us here to put into practice the art or the discipline of putting off and putting on. And he starts with, in verse 25, with truthfulness. He calls us to put off falsehood and to put on truthfulness or to be truthful. Now, I want you to keep in mind that when Paul is writing this, he's writing to a community. Therefore, this is what Paul is saying Fellowship can only be built on trust, and trust can only be built on truth. So the question for you today is this, are you being truthful? Are you learning how to put off and put on? And then he moves into anger in verse 26. He calls us to put off anger or the anger that makes us sin. And the implication then is that he calls us to put up peace and unity and love and forgiveness and patience. Now, when Paul here is talking about anger, he's not talking about righteous anger, what some of us would call. You know, I think that if the Bible gives us permission to exercise righteous anger. So, as I've been thinking of all of this that we're going through, I, 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 I can tell you that I'm, I, I feel anger during this season in my life. I, I feel uh, anger because I, I can see the effects of sin. I, I feel anger when I see people dying and being sick because of what we're going through. I feel anger because of uh, pain and selfish behavior and indifference. I feel anger to a certain degree because we don't get to worship together and hug one another and, and pray for one another personally. I, I think that we have permission to get angry for the things that God gets angry about. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about a different anger. It's the anger that you feel when you're being selfish. Selfish. It's the anger that you feel because things don't go your way. It's the anger you feel when you cannot control people or control circumstances. It, it, it is the anger that wants to punish others. And Paul says, put that off. Put on peace and patience, unity, reconciliation and forgiveness. Put on the fruit of the Spirit. See, sinful anger destroys community. The fruit of the Spirit unites community. And then from anger, he moves to generosity. He calls us to put up stealing and he calls us to work. But also he calls us to share with those that are in need. Now, the principle here is not just so that we should stop stealing and working more. But the principle here is that if you have enough, share with those that are in need this is part of the reason why a few minutes ago you heard uh, pastor Sergio calling you to continue to support the church financially you are called to be generous but at the same time we are calling you as a church to use what you have for the benefit of other people this is the reason why we are the church not only so we love and serve one another but we love and serve our neighbors From generosity, then, Paul jumps into words. And I think this one is going to get a little bit sensitive for some of us. He calls us to put off unwholesome talk, but to put on words that build others and are for the benefit of other people. This is what Paul is calling us to do. To exercise self-control when we're going to say something that he's not going to edify a person, but he's going to devastate a person. He's calling us to exercise self-control when we're going to use our words that are going to destroy somebody else instead of build somebody else. Have you ever wondered why is it that God chose words to communicate to us? I think that this is the reason. And I want you to hear me out. Words have the ability and capacity to go deep into your hearts. Words matter. This is the reason why you and me, you and I, still remember things that people said to us long ago. Truth matters. What you do with your anger matters. What you do with your money matters. What you do with your words matter. Everything matters when it comes to Christianity. This is the reason why Paul summarizes everything in verse 30 when he says do not grieve the holy spirit of god live according to who you are live according to what you have live a life of holiness and in that life you find satisfaction and in that life you see that life is not empty and in that life you see that life could be fruitful and in that life you see that you can experience joy. So here's the question. Can anybody live like that? And the answer for me is yes. I think so. Not perfect, but we can live like that. This is how we change. Not just knowing what it it means to have a life without Jesus, and not just seeing what a life with Jesus does, but also remembering and applying the reality that the only way this life is possible Is because of Jesus. This will be point number three. Now, what I want to show you here really quick is this. The the life that we live here in the present is the result of something that happened in the past and is looking into the future. I think that this is what Paul has in mind in verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. See the word "sealed" there in the text is talking about uh, something that um, that happened when Jesus went to the cross, and then later on happened when you accepted Him as a Lord and Savior. See, it is because Jesus went to the cross and took the punishment we deserve. It is because Jesus went to the cross and received the condemnations that we deserve. It is because Jesus went to the cross and took the, the took upon Himself the guilt that we have and the and the shame that we have experienced. It is because he did that in the past. And, when it, and then it became a reality to us when we accepted Jesus as a Lord and Savior that we were sealed by the Spirit. And the moment we were sealed by the Spirit, a new creation began. A new humanity began. A new person began. Therefore, the way you live in your present is, is tied up to what happened in the past. Now what Paul argues here is that as good as that is, you need more. You need your life in the present uh, be, being impacted what, for what is yet to come. And that's why Paul uses the word redemption. See, the word redemption is talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ, in which we're going to experience and see no more sickness, no more sin, no more struggle, no more pain. It will be a life of full satisfaction, a life to the full a life of peace, a life of community, a life in which we will never, ever, ever will have to worship separate as people and separate as Christians, a life in which we will learn how to love one another unconditionally. I don't know if you can picture that. I don't know if your imagination allows you to get there, but I want to invite you to try because that life What is yet to come really affects the way you live here now. Do you know why? Because if that is what is yet to come, this I know, that what we live here today would never ever be secure enough, fulfilling enough, loving enough, nothing enough. The best is yet to come. How do people change? When you see what a life without Jesus looks like, when you see what a life in Jesus looks like, and when you see what Jesus did for you in your past and what is yet to come. Do you have that? Let me pray for us. Lord, we want to thank you that a life that we have in Jesus is a beautiful life. We want to thank you, Lord, because we have in him what we always wanted. Lord, I, I don't know how many of us that are hearing this sermon are already believers and how many of, of us are not. But I pray, Lord, that you do the same thing to both groups. For those of us that are believers, Lord, that we remember the beauty of what it means to be a Christian. And the life that we have in Jesus. And the happiness and the joy and the benefit of what it means to live in holiness. And for those of us that have not surrendered our life to Jesus, Lord, please make it happen. That they get to see and taste that the life that we have in you is much better than anything else. Please open up our eyes and speak into our hearts. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
0: Let's respond to our message with one more hymn. now would you receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.